0: Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. And now here's your host, John Lauck.
1: Welcome to another edition of Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauck. Today we are joined by Marv Bergman. Marv Bergman is the editor of the history journal Annals of Iowa. Marv is coming to us today from the uh, campus of the University of Iowa in Iowa City. Welcome to the show, Marv.
2: Thanks. Glad to be
1: here. Marv, uh, you have a very important job in terms of Midwestern history. You are on the front lines of reviewing articles that uh, become books and become the basic building blocks of Midwestern history. How did you get into your current position, and uh, what is your overall background in history?
2: Well, it's kind of a roundabout story. I was uh, a graduate student at the Divinity School at the University of Chicago, and while there, I was asked to be an assistant to the editors of Church History, which is the journal of record in that field. Um, I loved the work And uh, when it came time, as I finished my graduate work to look for academic positions, I decided to also pursue the possibility of editorial career. And I worked first as an acquisitions editor at Mercer University Press in Macon, Georgia, and then uh, the position opened here at the State Historical Society to edit the State Historical Society's scholarly journal. And... uh, here since 1987.
1: What did you study at the University of Chicago?
2: Um, I did the history of Christianity, uh, specifically the history of religion in America.
1: Did you focus on the Midwest or on Iowa at all in your research?
2: I did not, although um, one of the ways I've ended up here is that my dissertation did have a regional burden I've always thought that place was really important when you consider history. Um, so my my topic was Revolutionary America. So um, obviously it was not likely to include Iowa, but I included a New England Congregationalist minister, a Middle Colonies Presbyterian pastor and university president, and a an Anglican minister in Virginia, and uh, that regional interest was furthered when I took the position at Mercy University Press, which published heavily in um, Southern History. So um, again, it, it is more, more the importance of place and region than specifically the history of the Midwest.
1: It's been my background. In terms of place and region, I would assume you have a particular interest in the Midwest, given your roots in Ohio. Can you tell us about where you grew up in Ohio, and uh, what the name of the town was, and what your folks did.
2: I grew up in a very small town of 350 people in the northwestern corner of Iowa, about halfway between Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Toledo, Ohio, a town called Ney. My father ran a business with his father um, that... Sold gasoline and fuel oil in gas stations and uh, via tank wagon trucks to farmers in the in the region, and uh, so that that's, uh, that is where I grew up, and that that background has shaped
1: me certainly to, to a great extent. What is that area of Ohio known for? I mean, we all are familiar with Appalachian, Ohio. We're familiar with urban Cleveland. Um, We're familiar with places like Youngstown. What was the flavor of your area of Ohio?
2: Uh, Certainly, that part of Ohio was very much uh, a farming region. It's um, not widely known. That particular region was originally known as the Black Swamp. So all that land had to be drained before it could be settled, and that region of Ohio was actually settled later than this part of eastern Iowa that I'm I'm living in now.
1: Interesting. So in that region of Ohio, is that where Defiance College is located? Yes, it is. And what did you study at Defiance? I did a religious studies major there. Were there historians at Defiance who were... Um, important in your development and studies
2: there certainly were and, and also the when I studied the history of American religion, a part of my religious studies program that was also uh, deeply influential in, in the path that I took but there was uh, there were a couple of historians there, in particular a Russian historian and a uh, historian of local Northwest who both were um, excellent teachers who influenced me. And I, and I took a number of, most of my elective or history courses.
1: I have recently been editing a uh, volume uh, for a university press that will focus on Midwestern history. And one of the chapters is written by John Butler, the historian of American religion. And he makes uh, several important comments about religion in the Midwest, since we're talking about your religious studies background. And uh, his basic point is that the um, Midwest is defined by religious pluralism or a real diversity of uh, varieties of Christianity. Unlike the South, say, which tends to be more dominated by Baptists and New England, which tends to be dominated by Congregationalists, and I'm speaking historically here, but in the Midwest you have more of a mixture of Catholics and Lutherans and old-line Protestants, Um, and I just thought that was a very interesting way to describe the Midwest. Does that sound right to you?
2: It sounds like John, and yes, it sounds, sounds right, and I think that's particularly true of Iowa, I think you, you think of, when you think of Minnesota, say, you think of Scandinavian Lutherans. Um, and certainly in the northeast part of Iowa, you have that domination. But otherwise, um, there are pockets of Catholicism, there are pockets of Methodism, but generally, um, even at the county level,
1: there's a considerable amount of diversity in Iowa. I think, if I remember right, um, the largest denomination in Iowa is the Methodist denomination. Does that I think sound that's
2: right. right. Um, but I recently um, published an article about um, a, uh, during the uh, 1930s and 40s, a Rabbi, a Catholic priest, and a Protestant minister traveled around Iowa promoting religious tolerance, and the author makes the point in passing, in in, in introducing that article, that, if I can find it here... um, They exploited the diversity of the state, um, and he claims that, uh, based on some uh, statistical information from secondary sources, that Iowa has um, more diversity than than any state in the country. I can't find it exactly how
1: that's Mm -hmm. worded. More religious diversity. Yes. Uh, recently, I think it was on NPR's Terry Gross's show, uh, Fresh Air. Uh, she interviewed a young woman who published a book about growing up in I. You'll have to correct me, Marv, but I think the town is Mount Pleasant, where the Maha Rishi uh, based his operations in the United that's States. Fair, that's Fairfield. Fairfield, I went. <clears throat> Tell us about Fairfield and what makes that unique in the Iowa story.
2: Uh, I don't know that story really well, um, but uh, there was a college, a Presbyterian college in Fairfield named Parsons College, that uh, when liberal arts colleges were failing around the country in the uh, 1960s and 70s, um, was a failed college. And this uh, Maharishi Institute purchased the campus and have expanded it since then, and have become really a center for that uh, Transcendental Meditation
1: movement. (laughs) Uh, We're talking today with Marv Bergman. He is the editor of Annals of Iowa. Uh, Marv is based in Iowa City, Iowa, which is also home to the University of Iowa. Marv, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what kind of articles that you look for as the editor of annals of iowa and maybe give a few tips to some younger scholars or graduate students who are looking to place articles
2: that's a common question that i get um, what topics are you most interested in and the answer that i like to give uh, is that the topics i'm most interested in are the topics i would never have thought of (laughs) So, so so i don't have Certainly there are topics that I would like to see pursued. Um, I think that we have lots of material on railroads in Iowa and across the Midwest, but very little about the similar kind of impact that interstate highways had, say. Um, so there's some topic like that I've long wished I had articles on, but, but for the most part I'm looking for articles that are well-written, well-argued, well-researched, that the author is passionate about. And that passion will come through in the article. Um, and, and that's the most important thing. So, so I'm looking for new topics, fresh interpretations of old topics, but uh, even topics that would seem to be worn can be given a fresh fresh treatment that will surprise me, and, uh, and I'm happy to see those as well.
1: For the uninitiated, Marv, talk a little bit about the mechanics of the journal, when you receive an article, what is the review process, and what is the time frame of review, and, and how does that work?
2: The Annals is a referee journal, so it follows basically the path that um, any academic journal will follow. So when an article is submitted to me, I will acknowledge its receipt and tell the author that I will read it first, and then, if it uh, merits it, I will probably send it out to two or three external reviewers. That process um, takes, in my case about ninety days, and then at that point, I get back to the authors. It almost always at that point, um, even the best articles will will um, benefit from some revision based on comments that we get from the readers and uh, So then the process from then depends, again, on the authors more than anything, the length of time.
1: One of the themes that I've noticed, uh, Marv, at the Annals of Iowa is your particular interest in the story of the meatpacking industry in Iowa, um which obviously uh, plays a major role in Midwestern history. Can you talk about your interest in that and uh, some of the articles and books that it's led to?
2: Yeah, it, it, it's one of the one of the surprising things to me after I took this job was uh, I came to Iowa and the three topics that I have published the most about have been, Women in Iowa history, African Americans in Iowa history, and the history of working class people and labor unions and labor strife. And that's been a surprise to me, um, but a welcome surprise. Um, And of course, the reason for that is that it's a topic; those topics have all been overlooked in the past, and were gaps that needed to be filled. In particular, the case of meatpacking unions. The the interest in that came about because the State Historical Society has a magnificent collection. A huge collection of oral interviews with people um, affiliated with unions in Iowa. Um, it's probably a collection uh, second, maybe only to the University of, or the Historical Society in Wisconsin in terms of that kind of a collection. And that has yielded um, a number of articles, from most notably, probably from Bill Warren, who wrote a series of articles about the Morrell plant in a one. Tumble- I've also had articles by a number of articles by Bruce Fain, who's written about the 1948 strike in Waterloo and about women in meatpacking plants. Um, And uh, so so Bill and Dennis DeSlip have published books out of that. Um, Shelton Stromquist and I co edited a volume about meatpacking in the Midwest. And so so there's been a a rich body of literature. It all starts with that collection that's here at the State Historical Society in
1: Iowa City. Does uh, your interest in uh, women's history or um, has your publications of articles about women's history in Iowa, is that linked to the uh, archive over at the University of Iowa Library, uh, the Women's History Archive?
2: Absolutely, that's another case where the, the the availability of the archives has driven the um, material that can, is available. Um, when Louise Mount and Margaret uh, Smith, um, Margaret Smith, founded that um, archives, shortly in, in the early nineteen nineties, not long after I arrived here, it. it made available a lot of sources that um, hadn't been available to look at for women before. And um, so, yes, absolutely, that's another case where having a rich archives has driven publication.
1: What about the uh, connection that the University of Iowa has to, and I I speak of this by way of distance only, uh, just up the road, on I-80 is West Branch, Iowa, and the Hoover Library. Does that tend to produce a lot of uh, articles about Herbert Hoover and his time in office?
2: That, I have been less receptive to material about Herbert Hoover because, in my view, his presidency doesn't really tell us necessarily a lot about Iowa history unless you can make that connection. One of the, the biases that I have I guess Um, there might be other state journal editors who would um, publish material about famous people who came from their state and made their careers elsewhere I just generally have avoided doing that
1: one of the things that I've noticed in recent years Marv is that uh, some state history journals have uh, made the decision to become uh, more glossy thinner and to publish articles that are a little bit more popular. Is there a trend at work here, or is this just random chance that I've noticed a few of these?
2: I think that is something of a trend. Um, that certainly happened in Wisconsin. Um, I, th- and there are certainly wonderful popular history magazines in um, the states of the old Midwest, Indiana, and um, Michigan in particular. Um, one of the things that, that happens, I have been less driven to do that because until very recently we have had a popular history magazine specifically devoted to that kind of work, as is the case in, in most of the states of the old Northwest. When you get west of the Mississippi River, it tends to be only um, the, the societies and maybe the, the research base. Um, permits only one publication, and so it has to try, when that's the case, it has to try to straddle that line between popular history and scholarly history.
1: We're talking today with Marv Bergman. He is the editor of Annals of Iowa, and he is just now celebrating his 30th year as the editor of the Annals of Iowa. Um, Marv, that's a, a, long tenure for you at the Annals of Iowa, and you are carrying on a very impressive tradition, uh, in Iowa city in terms of studies of Iowa and the region. And I'm thinking about some of your predecessors, uh, such as Benjamin Shambaugh, for example, can you talk a little bit about that tradition and how it influences you?
2: Yeah, Benjamin Shambaugh in particular casts a long shadow over the State Historical Society, particularly here in Iowa City, and uh, his career, as you know, was very much dedicated to um, the public applicability of historical work. Um, That's something um, that we try to forward whenever we can, Um, and uh, it's a... It's a uh, very positive legacy that he left for the
1: state historical society and for the state of Iowa. Marv, over the years, you and I have had uh, many discussions about the question of the health of Midwestern history as a field. And I'm talking now beyond the confines of Iowa history or state history in particular and uh, I'm talking about the region as a whole. Um, Do you have any thoughts on how um, historians in the last half century or or so have dealt with regional history, Midwestern history, and the state of the field overall? Well,
2: as you know, it's it's a complicated question. I think it's more complicated than sometimes it's presented. I think there has been... A whole lot of really fine work um, done on Midwestern history um, over this past uh, 30 or 40 years. Um, it is also true, I spent three years in Georgia um, working for a press that published regional history, and I became keenly aware while I was there that uh, the smallest college with a history department of two people would have one of those persons be a specialist in Southern history. And if it was a larger institution like the University of Georgia, they might have five or six people doing Southern history and a couple people doing the history of the state. Um, when I came back to the Midwest, I was likewise keenly aware that um, not only is it true that that, as far as I know, no institution in the region has somebody specifically devoted to the history of the Midwest, it's almost unthinkable. So at that teaching level, um, in terms of a consciousness of passing that legacy on, it's it's um, disappointing. In terms of publishing about the region, I think there has always been um, a, a rich body of literature that uh, that people could draw on to do that kind of teaching, If they just would.
1: You mentioned the University of Georgia, Uh, this statistic has been used in the past couple of years when we've been debating the health of Midwestern history. And that is that at the University of Georgia, there was roughly 10 people, 10 professors who taught the history of the South and the history of Georgia. Whereas by comparison at the University of Minnesota, which is an even bigger institution there were precisely zero people teaching the history of the Midwest and the history of Minnesota. Um, and that's the problem that you referred to there. Why, why do you think, as someone who's lived in Georgia, why is there this cultural difference between the Midwest and the South? Why is the study of regional history so much weaker in uh, the Midwest?
2: Well, um, the answer to that, I think, is purely speculative, and and all of us will have our biases about how we answer that question. I think in the South, it's easy to have a regional consciousness, because, and and also it's easy to define the region in terms of a legacy of the Civil War, and uh, that's very much a separatist region, um, and a a region that has carried that legacy forward. In some ways, the Midwestern story is the American story, Um, so I think there's a less of a consciousness of the need to tell that as a separate story.
1: How about uh, the University of Iowa, Marv? Do you think over its many decades in existence and its history department, do you think that there's been quite a bit of work on the Midwest uh, sponsored by or promoted by the University of Iowa?
2: Um, I think there's been a fair amount. Um, uh, certainly, Shel Stromquist did work on the region. Robert Dykstra started his um, magisterial work on uh, Hawkeye on African Americans in the 19th century uh, when he was at the University of Iowa. Um, uh, there has been um, a fairly good record, I think, yes.
1: We're talking today with Marv Bergman, the editor of Annals of Iowa, the quarterly uh, Iowa History Journal based in Iowa City, Iowa. Uh, Marv, what, uh, what have you been publishing in recent years? Uh, what have been some of your prominent articles? I know, uh, for example, that one of your recent articles about Cedar Rapids won a major prize.
2: Yeah, we're really proud of, of winning the Midwest History Association's Dorothy Schweder Prize, and um, it's also, of course, um, particularly uh, heartwarming because, picked to win a prize that's named after Dorothy Schweder, who was the long-time sort of dean of Iowa history. Um, but the article that you're talking about is Bree Swenson-Arnold's article about um, working-class women in Cedar Rapids. Um, She did a lot of nitty-gritty work to dig up um, biographical information about women whose stories um, don't get told because that information is so hard to find. And she pulled that out and put together a really fine um, article that brought their activities to light. Um, I think another article that I'm really proud of, I haven't published a lot of sport history over the years, but I had an a article um, a, a few years ago by uh, Zebulon Baker about um, the treatment of African-American players um, at Iowa universities, uh, specifically Drake and Iowa State and the University of Iowa, when they traveled to the south, to play um, teams at southern institutions, and that was a really fine analytical article, but also just a really fine, uh, fascinating narrative. And that's the kind of work that, that I especially appreciate is when it can combine that, uh, that uh, really rich interpretive um, framework with, it, with a uh, narrative that my lay readers will appreciate.
1: This is something that I think both of us, Marv, have talked about with Dave McMahon, a historian who lives in Iowa City and teaches at uh, Kirkwood Community College, and that is the uh, integration of African-American athletes into, in particular, the University of Iowa sports program. And if I remember correctly from those discussions, and maybe it was the article in your journal Uh, The University of Iowa was the first Big Ten school to actively recruit and promote um, the playing of African-American athletes back into the 20s and 30s. Is that right?
2: I don't know. That's not something I recall hearing. Um, Dave would be the one to know the answer to that, certainly.
1: Yes, I think uh, he has a great book that he put out. I think the title was outside in uh, it was a history of African Americans in Iowa and he had uh, he had an interesting uh, chapter in there about the Hawkeyes and the uh, whole question of African American athletes. Um, Marv, what do you have coming up in uh, future issues of the annals of Iowa that we should be looking for?
2: well in the uh, the, the issue that should be out in, a, in just a couple of days, Um, It's printed, but not in my hands or in subscribers' hands yet. Um, I have a really fine article about uh, Governor Harold Hughes during the 1960s who campaigned on a platform of authorizing liquor by the drink in Iowa, Um, and uh, he became one of the rare Democratic governors in Iowa history um, as a result largely of that campaign and some other issues. Um, But there's a really fine article about that. I also just accepted one of those pieces um, that, uh, sort of in the Benjamin Shambaugh tradition and one of those topics that I never would have thought of, um, uh, it's a piece on debates over the use of ethanol in um, gasoline, but not during the, the 1980s and 90s, as you might think, but in the 1930s. And I had, had no idea that that debate had gone on um, at that time. And it's a really interesting piece as well.
1: Hmm. Um, well, speaking of corn ethanol, um, that that seems to be related to this whole issue of liquor by the drink. You'll have to explain... <laughs>
2: I hadn't thought of making that connection, but yeah. I'm good.
1: <laughs> You'll have to uh, explain that that to me and our listeners. What is what is the controversy over liquor by the drink?
2: Uh, it's a it's a really complicated. thing. Iowa has a long um, history of uh, debates over available accessibility of alcohol. Uh, when I took when I sat in on an Iowa history course taught by Mac Robaugh here, um, he said that is the issue the most defining political issue in iowa history um, long-term um, Iowa uh... went back and forth in terms of whether liquor was available or not and uh... even when it was not uh... it was almost always available in river towns and elsewhere um... extra legally um... but uh... at the time of the nineteen sixties um... You could not buy liquor, um, buy the drink in in a bar or elsewhere. You, you had to buy it through a state liquor store. Um, at least that was the legal situation. Um, Hughes's point was, uh, it is being made available elsewhere. We have to either enforce the law or change the law. And, uh, he eventually, um, it was quite a struggle, but eventually he won that debate.
1: So does that mean if a person went into a bar in Iowa in, in the late 1950s, the only thing they could buy is beer? That's right. Interesting. I was not aware of that. I know in other Midwestern states, there were, uh, knockdown dragout battles by the county. Uh, each county's, um, each county would be given the option of banning alcohol or banning liquor or banning liquor and beer. But that's interesting that that stretched out into the 1960s in Iowa. Right.
2: And then there were various points in Iowa history where that kind of option, uh, local option, was uh, in place. Um, it, it just
1: went back and forth over time. I remember um, when I was living in Iowa City and doing research at the University of Iowa archives, dipping into some of the Hughes papers, and as I recall, he was a truck driver in Iowa who uh, got involved in politics kind of on a whim. Am I thinking of the same governor?
2: That's the one, and he was also an alcoholic, a recovering
1: alcoholic. Uh Uh-huh. All right, this is going to be a very interesting issue, and that article will be something that a lot of historians can connect to other stories and other states in the Midwest. Today we've been talking with Marv Bergman, the editor of the Annals of Iowa, down in Iowa City. Marv, I want to thank you for joining us today, and uh, please keep those issues of the Annals of Iowa rolling off the press. Will do. Thanks, John. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, Please tune in again in coming weeks for additional episodes of Heartland History.
0: Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at MidwesternHistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the Print Journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal, Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.